This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. It is possible that the U.S. government may not pay the subsidies to support health insurers that are part of the Affordable Care Act. A court battle is ahead with billions of dollars on the line. The insurance industry has filed about two dozen lawsuits saying that the federal government reneged on promises made when the Affordable Care Act was first applied. With more on this case, we are joined here in studio by Scott Harrington, professor and department chair in healthcare management here at the Wharton School. Rob Field, who is a professor of law and professor of health policy at Drexel University, as well as a lecturer here at Wharton. And also joining us uh, by the phone is Tim Jost, who is a professor of law emeritus at Washington and Lee University, as well as author of the casebook, Healthcare by Phone. Scott, Bob, great to see you both. Thanks for coming in. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Tim, great to have you with us today. Yep, good to be here. Thank you. Uh, I, Tim, I'll start with you. I, I mean, the, the court part of this is is very interesting because from what I was reading, we, we had, I guess, differing court decisions uh, at lower levels in this? Yeah, that is correct. There are actually, I think, now about three dozen lawsuits, and one of them is a class action, including 150 insurers. And at this point, there is about $12 billion at stake. Um, and there have been uh, a number of these cases are filed in the federal court of claims where you have to file a lawsuit if you want to sue the government from federal government for money. And uh, courts have reached different decisions in these cases. There's one judge now I think has ruled in two cases in favor of the insurers, and there's a couple of more cases that have been ruled in, in favor of the government. And uh, all of these, uh, well, those, uh, the two leading cases, the one for the government, the one for the insurers, are now on appeal to the uh, federal circuit, which hears all appeals from the Court of Claims. And they heard oral arguments, uh, I think, in January. So we should get a ruling from them any day now on on, uh, how they come down on this case. And... uh, that may pretty well decide it unless the Supreme Court decides to take it. Scott? Yeah, it's a very interesting case, very interesting set of issues because uh, the litigation we're referring to specifically right now deals with the so-called risk corridor program that was included in the Affordable Care Act in order to really encourage insurers to participate in the new regime in 2014. And basically what it said was, that if insurers' costs exceeded a target by specified amounts, they would receive payments for their losses above those amounts, or at least partial payments. But conversely, if insurers made quite a bit of money relative to the target, they'd have to pay in. And then what happened early on was a big debate about would payouts to insurers that had very high costs in relation to the target would payouts only be made if they collected enough money from insurers that made significant profits. And what happened over time, and as uh, Tim alluded to, is that the requests for payouts were enormously greater than what was collected. And as a result, you had the situation where 
how would the money be paid given that the collections were much less than what had been requested to be paid out? And originally, uh, the legislation seemed to imply that the government would be good for any excess of what was owed under right. these formulas. But as it turned out, over time, uh, there were congressional actions taken and the government never paid the money. And as a result, you've got insurance companies that basically lost a lot of money that they're not getting reimbursed under the formulas. Which means this is very, very important for the future of the Affordable Care Act. I mean, you're talking about $12 billion, $13 billion of money here that, as we've talked about on this show, we've talked about how certain insurers have really had to kind of bite the bullet over the course of time. Some of them have pulled out of certain areas because of the losses they've been taking. Right. Uh, $12 billion actually sounds like a lot of money, even uh, when we're talking about a $1.3 trillion spending bill that just got passed. But I think the more important implication of this case is what happens going forward. If the insurers feel that the government won't make good on promises that were in the ACA, what will they do, that do to their participation? participation in the exchanges in the future. Uh, we've got two big issues here. The risk corridors, the ones that went in losing money, expected a buffer and didn't get it. And then we have these cost-sharing subsidies where the insurers are told you may not charge deductibles or co-pays uh-huh. for prevent uh, uh, for people of, of very low uh, incomes, and the government will reimburse you, and that money is uh, being held up as well. So are they going to get spooked? Are they going to decide this is one more straw on the camel uh, that, that might break its back and, and decide these exchanges aren't worth it? Uh, I think that's the, the real uh, – what's really at stake here. So, it's Tim, I mean – Although one thing you – know, Go ahead. Just one, one thing to clarify is that the risk corridor program only existed for – 2014, right. 15, and 16. So the losses that are there now is the total of that is going to be incurred. But as Scott pointed out, the, uh, the, the cost-sharing uh, uh, reduction payments are ongoing. And <clears throat> there the, the, um, the government changed its approach in, in, or its interpretation of the law in, uh, in, in 2017 so the insurers lost a fair amount of money in 2017, uh, but the insurers have adjusted their premiums to cover the cost-sharing reductions going forward. So at this point, I mean, I think there is a real problem as to the government's uh, uh, willingness and ability to uh, make good on its promises going forward. But for these two programs, uh, I think that the damage has largely been done. And in fact, uh, with the risk quarter shortfalls, uh, a number of insurers went out of business, uh, cooperatives that were that had been formed under the ACA in particular went out of business. And uh, one thing I'm a little puzzled with right now is, is who's holding those debts. Uh, some of the lawsuits are uh, you have state guarantee funds that are trying to collect uh, as well as insurers that are still in business. <clears throat> One really interesting development along the lines of what Tim was talking about is that when these insurance companies became insolvent, they're basically taken over by a state liquidator 
who marshals all the assets and tries to collect all the money owed. And one of the things that's occurred is that some of these liquidators have actually sold their litigation rights and the risk corridor huh. litigation to private investors and private equity firms, which you know I like to say as an example of isn't America a great country when you can <laughs> when you can basically take the risk associated with this litigation and get some money up front. I know at least one state has done that, but my understanding is that more are considering it. But what would they be getting in, in terms of that transfer? I mean, it, it feels like it would be the proverbial you know penny on the dollar type of situation. No, I don't know. If you take a company, if you take one of these co-ops that failed and maybe they have a claim for $150 million or $200 million and a private equity firm or other investment firm comes in and says, if you sign over your rights to that litigation, we'll give you 30 or $40 million. So maybe it's right. pennies on the dollar, right. but the risk is being transferred uh, to, those, to those investors. But then the, the, then the hope is by the people assuming the, uh, assuming the debt that when, if this case were to be favoring the insurance industry and that $12 million or $13 or a billion, $12 or $13 billion would be coming back, then they would be recouping their money on the end from there. Right. And it shows some confidence right. in their part uh, right. as to where the litigation is going to go. And presumably these are people with expertise who know right. what they're doing. Right. Tim? Yeah, I did, I, the, the figures that Scott gives uh, are, are right, according to my understanding, that the, at least one of these cases, they bought it up at 30 cents on the dollar. So, uh, yeah, it's a big gamble, and I'm not sure it's a gamble I would have made. <laughs> but but again, do, in your opinion, Tim, does, does the Affordable Care Act have, moving forward, a, a, a really good chance to continue on without some sort of positive outcome in this court case? Uh, yes, I, I, I think this is just one of many factors right okay. now affecting the future of the Affordable Care Act and not the most important. Um, I, I should point out that uh, the, the risk quarters were not a new idea uh, with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, they were first tried, as, as far as I know, uh, in the Medicare Part D uh, prescription drug program. And there, uh, they've been in place for uh, ever since the program started and are still in place. Uh, and I think they were a significant factor in getting insurers to sign up in the first place. Although in that program, uh, the insurers have consistently paid in because they have made profits. Uh, but I think that the risk quarter program, as well as the reinsurance program, which phased out after three years, as well as a risk adjustment program, which is ongoing, uh, have all been, uh, were all important factors in getting insurers to enter this market in the first place. But I think right now a much bigger concern is the end of the individual mandate penalty in 2019 and the fact that the Trump administration is allowing the sale of, of short-term plans and association plans and who knows what else uh, that is going to siphon a lot of, of uh, young, healthy people out of the Affordable Care Act market, and I think that's what insurers are really worried about right now is who are they going to end up with. Yeah, and this is just as the they seem to have turned the corner in the market. Uh, they uh, seem to be very profitable since the ACA went into effect, and uh, the exchange business uh, seems to be going pretty well, uh, at least for many of them. 
844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. We're joined here in studio by Scott Harrington of the Wharton School, Rob Field of Drexel University, and joined on the phone by Tim Jost, who is with Washington and Lee University. Again, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. One of the, the things that's being brought forward, and I've seen it in a couple of articles, is the fact that the Republican side, which is uh, fighting against this to a degree, they're talking about the original appropriation from Congress uh, and whether or not that was legal uh, to begin with. So that how does that play into this entire process? Well, there really wasn't an appropriation, and, right. and that's the big issue, that right. the ACA provided for these payments, and then it was Republican Congress by the time they, they came due, and they refused to appropriate the money. Uh, Obama was able to switch around some funds and, and pay it. Uh, Trump said he would not. Uh, the question is, can the administration uh, pay this money without an explicit appropriation? Uh, Trump has since reneged, has made some of the, the payments, so the, the question is in, in legal limbo very much. Scott? Uh, the situation is full of irony, and I think it's important to distinguish the risk corridor litigation from the issue about cost-sharing reductions. With respect to cost-sharing reductions, the CBO came out a couple days ago with some budget predictions that suggested if cost-sharing reductions are restored, there would actually be an increase in the federal deficit, but that's based on a bogus baseline uh, analysis, and they looked at what would happen given really reality of what's going on with spending, and they indicated that the deficit might reduce by $30 billion over 10 years. And it gets it gets pretty complicated. But the upshot now is that insurance companies, as Tim suggested, have raised premiums to make up for the fact, by and large, that they're yeah. not getting these cost-sharing reductions. That's increasing the federal budget, the federal subsidies of premiums because they're tied to how high premiums are. And so you get this ironic situation where where we are now, the federal deficit will be bigger, premiums will be higher, people that make over 400% of poverty are at the margin, the ones that are really going to get squeezed on this. And it would actually make sense to fund the cost-sharing reductions to reduce the federal deficit and reduce some of this pressure that's existing on premiums. And, and it would seem that sensible policy might say, let's go ahead and fund these cost-sharing reductions, but... Uh, politics get in the way of sensible policy here. Tim? Yeah, and in particular, what I think the biggest thing that got in the way is the uh, the abortion issue, which uh, often gets mm-hmm. in the way of any kind of reasonable approach to health policy, uh, in that the um, in in the the uh, health health insurance stabilization bill that the Republicans uh, put forward at the beginning of the week based pretty closely on the bipartisan agreement that had come out of the, the Senate Help Committee, uh, they added a, a Hyde Amendment writer that the funds could not be used for uh, um, to cover uh, abortions except in the case of rape, incest, or, or a physical threat to the life of the mother. And uh, the effect of that, since it would have applied to the reinsurance money, uh, in the bill, which would have uh, a, a applied across the individual market, is that it would have outlawed uh, abortion coverage in the individual market as a total, not just the ex- the exchange market, not just the marketplace market, but the entire individual market. 
and uh, and that was too much for the Democrats. And uh, it's you just can't find a compromise on abortion. Uh, and so that that kind of ended it. But but as Scott said, uh, getting towards the end there, uh, some progressive groups were saying, you know, we're better off without the funding of the cost sharing reductions uh, because it's driven up premiums, which in turn has driven up the premium tax credits, uh, which means that for lower income people, they have more options uh, and actually can get better insurance coverage. Uh, and so uh, it, it is a very ironic situation that the defunding of the cost-sharing reductions by the Trump administration has, in fact, uh, improved the situation for low-income people. For higher-income people, it's a problem. And I think they are the ones who are really facing problems now in, in this market in, in Charlottesville, near where I live, uh, uh, in uh, the insurance premiums went up 300% last year, and they are just absolutely unaffordable for people who don't have uh, premium tax credits. Yeah. One of the political questions is whether the abortion issue was raised because of an ideological commitment or as a poison pill to prevent the uh, the, the law from going through. Um, it looked like they had an agreement. Uh, it looked like uh, Lamar Alexander and Patty, Patty Murray had, had negotiated something and then uh, ab- abortion came in. Uh, it may have been an effort by conservatives to kill the whole thing. Uh, or it may have been, uh, as Tim was saying, uh, abortion rears its head again and then nothing gets done. Uh, the question I have is that one of the terms that's being used in this whole process is, is that this money that would be helping out these insurers is being considered or being brought forth as an idea of being a bailout. Is it a bailout? No. Uh, Tim, let me go ahead. And then I've really been troubled by this whole bailout language since Marco Rubio really introduced this several years ago. He had a major op-ed, a major piece that the risk order payments at that time were a major bailout. I don't regard an arrangement where you agree to do something before you know what's going to happen that you're going to make pay monies under certain conditions, and then those things happen and you pay the money, that's distinct from a bailout, which means companies do crazy things, they get into trouble, and yeah. then they get money. This this really is not a bailout. Now, you can't argue that the risk order program, by protecting companies against some of the downside if they underpriced, might have encouraged some, comp- some insurers to be too aggressive. Right. But that's certainly a more nuanced argument than just calling this a bailout. And people have also called cost-sharing reductions a bailout. And that's simply inconsistent with the meaning of the term bailout. The the real debate here is how much money should we be putting into the system? What do we need to do to help make coverage more affordable for people that aren't eligible for subsidies? And the bailout language is, is, in my opinion, not conducive to constructive debate over what's going on. And the risk corridors are modeled on the Bush uh, Part D plan. Uh, So it really actually is a Republican idea. Tim? And, the, and just the, the great irony to me of this was at the same time that Rubio really first framed this issue as a bailout and got a appropriations rider through that would have limited the ability of the federal government to pay it. Uh, he was supporting uh, heavy federal subsidies for flood insurance down in Florida. So one person's bailout, I suppose, is somebody <laughs> else's just a good good public policy. 
844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Your comments are welcome. In studio with Scott Harrington of the Wharton School, Rob Field of Drexel University, and on the phone with Tim Jost of Washington and Leeing University. I, I don't know if you can ever guess what is going to happen in a court case, and especially in this situation, because you have different courts coming up with different conclusions to basically the same question. That being said... Let's throw a crystal ball in here for a second. (laughs) Scott, what do you think? There are numerous legal issues which are beyond my competence. I have read the opinion in the so-called Moda case where the judge basically said the law says that risk order payments did not need to be budget neutral. What the government did was encourage insurance companies to sign up and provide coverage, and they later reneged on that promise and therefore breached basically an implicit or even an explicit contract. From the economic substance of what the goal of the risk order program was, it seems to me that that type of interpretation is correct. Now, again, I can't comment on the legal issues and so on, but I can argue on the substance that I think that there is an element of bait and switch here that has broad implications. Well, Tim, let me throw it to you for the legal side of things. Yeah, I listened to the oral argument, and it seemed to me that, that there are three judges in the federal circuit that are that are going to decide this case. It seems to me that they asked some pretty probing questions to both sides, uh, but it seemed to me that they were more convinced by the uh, federal government's argument than by the insurer's argument. Uh, but... Uh, one possibility here is that they may split the baby because uh, the insurers set their rates for 2014 uh, in 2013 uh, when the federal government was still saying that the program would would not be budget neutral. And then this rider, the Rubio rider, was passed at the end of 2014 for 2015 when they were already selling coverage. So I think one possibility here is the insurers might get their reliance payments for 2014, uh, but not get anything for 2015 and 2016, when actually they had much bigger losses. Rob? Yeah. I think the next level of speculation is whether this goes to the Supreme Court, and whether it's round five for for the ACA. Uh, The court has generally been favorable to the financial structure of of the ACA. Um, There, I would put my money on another decision along those lines. I would just add to Tim's comment, my thinking would be maybe if they were going to split the baby, they would actually allow payments for 2014 and 2015 because the rates had been developed for 2015 as early as May or June in 2014. But I think Tim's right. There is sort of wiggle room here in terms of what could the companies know, when should they reasonably have uh, been unable to rely on the fact that these things might be paid. Well, I guess then the question is, is then how does all of this potentially impact the Affordable Care Act moving forward? I mean, I think a lot of people, that ends up being the premier question of what we are going to see for the ACA in 2019 or beyond that, potentially. Yeah, I I think, as as Tim was saying, this is just part of the overall picture. It's sort of death by a thousand cuts. And and the the end of the mandate penalty is is a much deeper cut, uh, as are uh, allowing some of the short-term and bare-bones plans. Um, 
on the other hand, and insurers do seem to have warmed up for for it. Uh, we had uh, nine million people uh, sign up for for coverage. Uh, a lot of them need the coverage and will sign up no matter what. Uh, so it looks like uh, the the exchanges are are continuing to to muddle along, um, but the cuts keep multiplying, yeah. and uh, uh, I, I think that's more of the issue, Scott. The failure to fund cost-sharing reductions has not contributed to stability of the market and has created much more pressure on premiums, especially for those not eligible for subsidies. So I think in that respect, uh, it's important because if there was some legal decision that cost-sharing reduction subsidies needed to be paid ex post and it contributed to paying them going forward, I think that at the margin would contribute to stability. I think by at this point, the risk order issue, as Tim talked about earlier, that's sort of done, and we're really arguing about who's going to pay what to whom, if anything, yeah. without strong implications going forward, apart from the fact that it does, if a negative decision on risk orders from the perspective of the insurers, I think broadly it undermines the confidence that private players can rely on legislation when it's passed, uh, and that might have ramifications going forward in a variety of areas. Great having you all with us. Tim, thank you very much for joining us on the phone today. Thank you. Thank you. Scott, Rob, great seeing you both. Thanks for coming in. Greatly appreciate it. Scott Harrington of the Wharton School, Rob Field of Drexel University, Tim Jost of Washington and Lee University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.